We're going to be talking a bit this morning about a topic that can sound really great on the surface, but be very difficult to work through. Uh, It's peacemaking, and we're going to be doing that from Sermon on the Mount. So I'm going to pray for us right now, and and I'm going to cry out to God to work in our hearts, to work in my heart, to give us all a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, to recognize that peacemaking cannot be man-made. Peacemaking is not something that's naturally in us. Peacemaking is only in us because of who Jesus Christ is. Because he has supernaturally worked in our lives, in our hearts, and that's the only hope we can have of doing it. So I want us to have a lot of humility as we're thinking through this message today together. uh, And I want to begin that with prayer right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our God and we are your people. We thank you that we are here because you have united us to Christ. We are here because we have a real and genuine hope that Jesus Christ will meet us through the power of his Holy Spirit here this morning. We recognize, Lord, that we live in challenging times uh, in our country, in our families, in our relationships. We know, Lord, that making peace can be very, very difficult and that we are far better at making excuses for why we don't make peace than we are at pursuing peace. We are far better at avoiding conflict than we are at lovingly resolving conflict. We are far better, Lord, quite frankly, at ignoring the implications of our identity in Christ then we are at working hard to play them out in our lives. And so I pray, Lord, that you give us humility today. I pray that you give me sensitivity to your Holy Spirit as we walk through this passage. I pray that you help each and every person in here to have sensitivity to your Holy Spirit, Lord, both to be encouraged and to be challenged, to be able to safely and honestly consider where we're at and where we need to go together. Let me pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's not very difficult to see that we live in a divided world. But this division isn't just out there in between nations, right? This division is everywhere. There's an inability to make peace in our country most of the time. There's an inability to make peace in our state. There's an inability to make peace in our city. There's an inability to make peace within our own churches. And there's often an inability to make peace within our own marriages and families. Peacemaking is not something that comes natural to us. In general, all of humanity is bad at peace. And yet God has created us to find unity and peace. But here's the thing. God has created us to find unity and peace and our commonality as image bearers. Yet the only time we tend to find peace is is in a unity of opposition against the other. Right, we'll see this in our big marches, and it's and some of it can sometimes be, oh, we're coming together and we're together in this, but why are you together? You're together because you're opposed to that, and you're better than that. You're together because there's a unity of opposition. Think about this in our movies. When in our movies, when's the only time we see all of humanity uniting together? Alien invasion. I'm telling you, it goes deep to humanity. There's a, a unity of opposition, not a unity of commonality. And if we're honest, Christians now and throughout history have been awful at making peace. How are you at making peace? How are you at really working through difficult conflicts in your life and in your relationships? It's not enjoyable. It can take a lot of energy. And most often, we try to do it in our own strengths. We fail, and then we learn who to avoid and how to avoid them for the rest of our lives. (laughs) But God wants us to go deep at that. And so we're going to focus on on peacemaking today. And we're going to look at what it really means and how we do it from the Sermon on the Mount and other places in Scripture. Now, I had the opportunity this last week to go to a uh, congressional forum on racial reconciliation in, in D.C. This forum was set to happen regardless of who won the election, by the way, um, because of all the divisions that were revealed in our society. 
There were 60 or so people there, uh, pastors and leaders from across the nation, uh, a lot of a lot of diversity in terms of like theological convictions, age, ethnicity, and all kinds of stuff. And at the very beginning of this, they went around the room and everyone got up and said basically who they were and, and why they were there. Um, and there were a lot of very impressive and really interesting people there. And then it got around to this guy who was, uh, whose name was Richard Harris. He's about 60 or so years old, kind of heavy set, crew cut on top. And he stands up and he says, my name's Richard Harris, and I am the assistant pastor of an historically black church in Lakeland, Florida. Thought, that's interesting, but it's not unheard of for a white man to serve as an assistant pastor at a black church. But then he says this. He says, but if you were to Google me, you'd quickly find out that I'm more famous as being the youngest ever grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan in the state of Indiana. And he goes on to explain that he was so gifted at inspirational hate speech that by the age of 18, he rose to run the KKK for all of Indiana, started getting... Uh, influenced or mentored, rather, um, by the Imperial Wizard. I don't know where these guys come up with these names. <laughs> but the Imperial Wizard is the guy that's in charge, and he mentors him, and he says, Richard, you know, your hate speech is going to be more effective at promoting the KKK if you pull in some religious language. And so Richard opens up the Bible and starts reading it, looking for language he can kind of co-opt and, and uses his hate speech, and he's floored. When he gets to the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well, this woman that's, that's mixed ethnicity that you're supposed to hate as a KKK person, he sees that Jesus stands for love and not hate. And God from that day radically transformed this man's life and he has worked for the last 30 plus years to heal the divisions that he once worked so hard to create. It's amazing. And with the Spirit of God, nothing's impossible. So one of the organizers, the co-organizers of the event was a, was a woman named Barbara Williams Skinner. She was the, um, the first woman, she's an African-American, and she was the first woman to serve as the executive director for the Congressional Black Caucus. Um, and she is now working for reconciliation and peace all over. She's raised out in Antioch and East Bay, goes to SF State here for undergrad at pretty tumultuous times in our country. And she becomes a sympathizer, though she would say not a formal member of the Black Panthers. And so she stood up and introduced herself after Richard Harris. And in fact, on Friday, Richard Harris and Barbara Williams Skinner got together to tour the African-American History Museum together in Washington, D.C. <laughs> you think about something, like it's not humanly possible, right? It's not them both deciding they're going to be good human beings and just get along. These are people that had, you know, they did cultivated hate, had cultivated opposition, had cultivated a way of not getting along and not making peace. And yet by the power of God, these things are happening. That's the same power that's at work in every follower of Jesus. When God gets a hold of your life, God redeems and renews you through the personal work of Jesus Christ. And he not only makes peace between himself and you, he makes you a peacemaker. Peacemaking is not something you're supposed to do or something that's morally good for you to do. It's not in that category. It's in the category of being part of who you are. Matthew 5, 9 is the verse we're going to focus on today. And it says simply this, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. See that? It gets an identity. I love this verse. I love the beauty of it. I love what it says about how much God loves peace and, and how it's part of our identity and how we're supposed to live this out as his people. But I got to be honest, when I start thinking about the cost of peacemaking and how difficult it can be, I can very easily start to moderate or ignore the full impact this verse is supposed to have and begin to make excuses. But here is what followers of Jesus cannot get away from. That there's a very simple, logical progression that we all live under. And here it is. Jesus laid his life down to reconcile the world to himself. 
Jesus laid his life down to reconcile you personally to God. And in turn, Jesus calls you to lay your life down for others. That's it. There's no escaping that. That is, that is incontrovertible in scripture. It's challenging, but it's part of your identity. It's part of who you are. The, the main idea we're going to focus on today is that if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a peacemaker. That doesn't mean you're a good peacemaker, but you're a peacemaker. So how do we live it out? What, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to work through that right now. We're going to see that, that being a peacemaker, understanding this part of our identity has everything to do with first, how we see Jesus. Secondly, how we see others. And third, how you see yourself. We're going to spend most of the time on the first point since that's the foundation for everything else we do. So first here, how, we, how you see Jesus. The foundation and power for everything we do as followers of Jesus is always Jesus. I'm going to get so repetitive in this first point, but it's for a reason. We never leave that behind and go off in our own strength. In fact, we have no true strength independent of Jesus and the power of his Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus himself taught, blessed are the peacemakers, so they shall, or for they shall be called the sons of God. Now he's teaching this in the Sermon on the Mount, and this teaching would have come as quite a shock to many of his listeners, who, who were likely hoping for a political deliverer who could vanquish Rome and restore the kingdom and put them back in their place. They, they might have been thinking, we need vengeance and freedom, not peacemaking. What does that have to do with our problems? But Jesus is always pointing us to something different and something deeper, isn't he? He's always looking at something bigger about humanity and not just us. God is who he says he is, and you are who he says you are. And it's our responsibility to submit to that, not to apply God to what we want him to be doing. We, we must work to submit ourselves to God's agenda in this world and in our lives, rather than subtly or even clearly and implicitly trying to fit God into our own agendas. Identity is the key to everything. This is not about changing your behavior. It's not about you being a better person. It's about you getting a bigger and grander vision for who Jesus Christ is. Stanley Hauervoss and uh, William Willimon wrote a book called Resident Alien. It's a whole book. It's very challenging. I don't agree with all of it, but, it, but it'll move you. Um, and it's about the Beatitudes. And they say this. We miss the point when we reduce the Beatitudes to maxims of positive thinking, new rules for getting by well. How many moralistic sermons have we heard urging people to be peacemakers or meek or feeders of the poor? The indicatives become moralistic imperatives, new rules which lead to conventional forms of ethical activism, anguish, or security, depending on the particular species of self-deception at work in the practitioner. So peace makes sense. For everyone knows that if we, are to, if we do not negotiate a treaty with the Russians, we may blow ourselves to bits. It makes sense to make up with someone in your church before offering your gift at the altar, for this will make for a more unified congregation. As Richard Lyncher asks, but why should Jesus be crucified for reinforcing what everyone already knows? What if all of this is not new and more stringent rules for us to observe, but rather a picture of the way God is? Of course, we are forever getting confused into thinking that scripture is mainly about what we are supposed to do rather than a picture of who God is. If Jesus had put forth behavior like turning the other cheek when someone strikes you as a useful tactic for bringing about the best in other people, then Jesus could justly be accused of ethical naivete. But the basis for the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount is not what works, but rather the way God is. Cheek turning is not advocated as what works. It usually does not. But advocated because this is the way God is. God is kind to the ungrateful and the selfish. This is not a stratagem for getting what we want, but the only manner of life available now that in Jesus we have seen what God wants. 
We seek reconciliation with the neighbor, not because we will feel so much better afterwards, but because reconciliation is what God is doing in the world in Christ. Shut that settle in for a minute. If this is who Jesus is, and this is what he's doing, and who we are flows from who he is, then being a peacemaker is part of who we are. It's not an option. We, we need to get to work figuring out how to be a better peacemaker, not trying to dodge the call of God because it's part of who we are. And it's part of who we are, again, because it's part of who God is. It's not just moral advice. It goes to the core of our identity as an image bearer of God. Peacemakers are sons of God. So much in the New Testament, especially the epistles, is focused on working out the implications of our identity in Christ. It says stuff like, you know, basically, if you're united to Christ, then these things are true about you. Or since you are united to Christ, you should do these things and not do these things. But the commands are always rooted in identity. Or as theologians have traditionally described it, the, the commands, the imperatives, what we are called to do, are always, every time, rooted in the indicatives, the truth of who we are in Christ. How we live flows from who Christ is. And if we are in Christ, that has to change everything. You see, Christ isn't just a dessert topping you sprinkle on at the end. He is the absolute core of everything. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones says about that. He says, God has made peace. He has humbled himself and his son to produce it. That is why peacemakers are children of God. What they do is repeat what God has done. We repeat what God has done. God is all about peacemaking. God has made peacemaking part of who we are. Jesus Christ is what? The Prince of Peace. And we're united to the Prince of Peace. And so if we're united to the Prince of Peace, we do peace. It's part of who we are in Jesus. Now listen for the pattern the Apostle Paul is trying to help the Philippians understand that they should be treating each other better, right? There's a core issue that he has to address. The Philippians are not relating to each other in a healthy and loving and kind and reconciling way. And so he wants to help them do better, but he doesn't say be nice because it's good to be nice or even be kind to each other because it makes God happy. He roots everything in what is true about them because they are in Christ. So I'm going to read all 11 verses of the first uh, of chapter 2 in Philippians. It's a little bit long, but stick with me because I want you to listen to this. I want you to feel this. I want you to see the progression of how the Apostle Paul is helping them to change how they treat each other. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships to one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. See what he's doing here? In your relationships with each other, as you think about how to treat others, have the mind of Christ. Why? Because you're united to Christ. And so we have his mind. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now that's a beautiful and a powerful theological statement. But remember why he's writing. 
This is not just doctrine to be memorized. This is truth about Jesus to be lived out in relationship. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Everything we do is rooted in our identity in Christ. He has to stay at the center. He has to be the lens through which we evaluate every relationship. That means any conflict you're having, you have to evaluate it in terms of Jesus Christ. Any lack of love in your hearts towards any other human being on this planet, look at Jesus and consider it again. Are you embracing humility as this passage calls us to do? Again, he's not saying be more humble, dig down deep, and be more of who you can be. No, what's he saying? Look at who Jesus is. Acknowledge the power that Jesus has at work in your life and change the way you view others. Are you looking first to the interests of others, he asks us. Are we valuing others above ourselves? Good night. This is hard stuff, right? It's challenging. I don't want to do this kind of stuff. It's hard. But does it being hard make it somehow not good or right or give us a pass? No, it doesn't. It being hard is intended to drive us to greater dependence upon God. The more we see the depth and the, and, the, and the difficulty of the work we're called to do, the more it should drive us to our knees to cry out to God that he would empower us with his Holy Spirit because we cannot do this on our own. We need Christ, everything and all of it. We cannot get away from that. We have no hope of living this out if Christ is not at our center. If we don't see Jesus as he is, we can't do it. And, and so we don't pursue peacemaking primarily because we have a passion for social justice. We don't pursue peacemaking because it's so needed in our divided country. We don't pursue peacemaking because it's quote unquote a Christian thing to do. We pursue peacemaking because we are united to Christ and it's part of who he is and therefore it's part of who we are. Chrysostom was building a church in the fourth century during very divided times, not much uh, difficult or different than our own. And, and, and a core of how he built this church was this idea. For in fact, this was the crucial work of the only begotten, to bring together things divided and to reconcile the alienated. And so because that is the key work of Jesus, it's also the key work of those united to Jesus. We cannot and must not try to do this in our own strength. If you're struggling to be a peacemaker, it's not because you're not trying hard enough. It's because there's something wrong with how you see Jesus. A bigger and more accurate view of who Jesus Christ is and what it means to be united to him is what your key is going to be. You see, my responsibility as a preacher is different than a life coach or a therapist. Life coach and therapists are great. They have their place and their purpose, but that's not what we're doing up here. What a preacher does, what a pastor does, is try to help us work out the full implications of our union with Christ. Are we really living in light of what they are? Do we understand what they are? Do we know how to apply those things to our life? That's different. Do you know the phrase that Jesus repeats more often than any other in the gospel accounts? It's follow me. 31 times, follow me. And here's the simple truth. Following Jesus is about Jesus. We must know who he is and live in light of who he is. It's profound, I know. <laughs> and here's why. Again, it's because who Jesus is shapes who we are. If we're in him, everything changes. In other words, if you're united to Christ, you're actually united to Christ. And because of that, we begin to look at the world differently and live differently in a way that sounds freaking nuts if it's not true. Right? How many times are you supposed to forgive somebody? Seven. 70 times seven. That's crazy. Not hyperbole though, right? Jesus is saying you're not ever released from forgiving somebody. We're not just supposed to love our brothers and sisters. We're supposed to love even our enemies. This doesn't make sense unless Jesus is who he says he is. Your identity is irrevocably connected to who Jesus Christ is. It's not Jesus' moral example. It's Jesus' king. It's Jesus' life-transforming power and foundation. Who he is changes how we are present in this world. 
We, we are an extension of the presence of Jesus Christ, of the mission of Jesus Christ. It, it's amazing and it's beautiful, but boy, can it be hard. And that's why we need Jesus. Dumped along all you there. There's going to take a little bit of a breather. And, <laughs> and we'll talk about what this looks in real life. I'm going to give you an idea of what it's looked like in my life. And it's far from perfect and it's messy as heck. But here's the situation I had a couple years ago. Uh, we live out in the Richmond district. Um, and we were trying to put some new little pavers in our backyard to make it a little bit nicer. And there's a gate on, along the fence of my backyard that goes to a common alleyway. And so I had a truck full of these pavers and I had some friends and my boys were out there doing this thing with me. And we're unloading the pavers into the backyard through the gate. And this woman who I've never met before comes from down the alleyway um, and she's gray haired lady and her hair is kind of going wild and she looked a little bit scary. Um, and she comes up and she starts screaming at me, expletives that I didn't know little old ladies knew. And certainly I don't think my children knew that little old ladies knew the words. My, my kids are listening, if it's a gray haired lady, it's their loving grandmother. But this woman comes at me screaming and yelling that, that I am illegally blocking the alleyway and that I need to get out of there right effing now um, or, or she's gonna call the police. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm in, I'm in Christ. <laughs> and again, though, I'm thinking, okay, I got this. All right, so I'm gonna make peace. I'm saying, um, we're just trying to unload some pavers and, and we'll be out of your hair in like two to three minutes and we're not, we're, we're walking, listening to the alleyway for two or three minutes, but you can go out the other end of the alleyway, right? And she's just not listening to anything. She's just, just rolling, rolling, rolling. Um, and she picks up one of the pavers and acts like she's gonna throw it at me. Um, and I'm like, no, seriously, I don't, I'm your neighbor. You know, I, I'd hope to meet you in some other context than this, but, <laughs> um, but we'll be out of here in a second. And she starts yelling and screaming about how people are always using the alleyway and they're not supposed to use the alleyway. And then finally she tells me that she's going to pull her car out and hit my kids. Um, and then I'm like, all right, well, look, we'll go ahead. We'll unroll the rest of them later. We'll get out of your hair. Again, we weren't trying to cause any problems. And we drive out of there and I sit down with my boys and I kind of walk through them, you know, what it looks like to love others in the way that Christ loves them. <laughs> And in my mind, I'm the very embodiment of Jesus, right? I've forgiven, I've loved. And I think I've done it in the strength of the Holy Spirit. Two days later, I got a letter from her husband that revealed I didn't do it in the strength of the Holy Spirit. Because her husband sends me a letter um, on his legal law office letterhead. Because nothing says I'm your friendly neighbor like legal law office letterhead. And it's this letter with all kinds of indictments that, that, I, that I actually blocked his wife into her driveway and wouldn't let her out. Um, and, and he was telling me that they, if I, if I ever was in there again, they were going to, you know, call the police and consider filing a lawsuit against me and all kinds of inflammatory language in this letter. And, and 90% of this letter just, it just wasn't true, right? It wasn't, none of it was e even accurate. And so I sit down and I begin to write a letter back and I write a letter and I'm sure we know how to write these letters and have these communications. I write a letter that's got just enough Jesus in it <laughs> that I can in good conscience stick it to him. And by the time I'm done with this letter, I'm pretty proud of it, right? Because it's got that gospel balance in there. You can't accuse me of not being a Christian. Um, but really, what's my heart motivation, right? I, wanna, I, wanna, I want this guy to, to be put in his place, especially because he wrote to me on lawyer letterhead. Um, so the Holy Spirit gives me a little bit of pause. And I send the letter to a friend of mine who's an attorney who I really deeply trust, who's an elder in another church. And he reads the letter and he calls me back. And, uh, and I said, so what do you think of my letter? 
And I'm just hoping he's going to give me his approval so I can feel good about sending it. See, I'm multitude of counsel, right? I got my biblical basis covered for this thing. And he says, well, what's your goal here? And I thought, crap, I should have called someone else. <laughs> he says, do you want to vindicate yourself and get revenge for the way that woman treated you? Or do you want to love your neighbors and help them understand who Jesus is? So I like, <laughs> but he was right. And, and what he said was the Holy Spirit really cutting straight through to my heart. And so I rewrote the whole letter. And I rewrote the whole letter trying to put myself in this man's shoes, recognizing he, his wife probably is actually having some mental issues. Um, she's probably not told him an accurate idea. He thinks he's actually defending his wife and I'm someone terrible, right? And so I write him back a letter where I kind of just explained to him kind of what happened and just was very apologetic. Told him I had no, no idea that they had had historic problems at the alleyway in a local school and people parking and driving through it. Took as much sympathy as I could, as much empathy as I could for him. Wrote that all out. It was, the letter was a lot shorter than my original letter. Uh, <laughs> and I sent it off. And I got this letter back from this man that could not have been more apologetic. And the end of this letter basically said, I hope we can put all this behind us and forget the past. I want to be a good neighbor, and I hope in the future we can meet fresh as new neighbors. So again, it was messy, right? Because my initial standpoint was to kind of put on this, this facade of Jesus, but not actually really be a peacemaker. And the challenge is, is that peacemaking without Jesus will not last. For a follower of Jesus, you know, trying to do these things in your own strength, if you're trying to do that, it's basically like it's taking the engine out of a car and trying to drive uphill, right? It's, it's not just that it will be hard. It just won't work. There, there's no way we have any ability to do it. What I can do in my own strength is not even worth comparing to what I can do in the power of the Spirit. So here, here's the main idea to take away from this first point. If you take away nothing else, take away this. Whenever you struggle to make peace, trying harder is not the first thing you need to do. You need a bigger vision for who Jesus is and a deeper faith in how he has called you to live in this world. If you're struggling, go to the Gospels. Be, be newly and freshly amazed at who Jesus is. Sit at his feet, ask for his help, and it'll come to you. You see, the foundation of peacemaking is how we see Jesus. Secondly and thirdly, we're going to talk about how to put these things into practice, and that's going to depend on how we see others and how we see ourselves. And again, we'll do these second sections more briefly. But secondly, how you see others. Do you value other human beings because they're image bearers of God? When, when you see them, do you see their inherent dignity and worth and honor as image bearers? You see, there's no alienated others for a Christian, for a follower of Jesus. There are only image bearers. All of humanity can really be divided into two categories. There are either broken image bearers that have been redeemed and renewed in Christ, and we know we're called to love them with a special love, or there are broken image bearers that desperately need to be redeemed and renewed in Christ. And we know we're called to love them with special love, to pray and to work and to hope that they can be introduced to Christ. Those are the only two categories. I don't see enemy and opposition. I rework the way I think about the world so I can see people in the way that God sees them. And this is especially hard in the midst of conflict because in the midst of conflict, I want to get back. I want to win. I want to strike back. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in talking about this tendency, says this, the natural man is so strong in us. You often hear Christian people say, I must express my mind. What if everyone were like that? No, you must not excuse yourself to talk in terms of what you are by nature. As Christians, you are meant to be new men. 
made after the image and pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ, swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Isn't that amazing? Do we really believe that? In the midst of conflict that you're called to be slow to speak, slow to wrath, swift and eager to hear? Do we really believe that? How much would it change in our lives at the point of conflict if we actually believe that we were who God says that we are? Two more side notes on how we view others. Favoritism and self-interest will kill peace absolutely every time. That applies across the board. There are no favorites with God. How many in here were the favorite child in their house growing up? You can show hands. How many in here hated the favorite child in your family growing up? <laughs> that dynamic can be kind of funny as it plays out with kids, right? But that dynamic of having favorites is the source ultimately of all kinds of different conflicts and sin and division in our world. God has no favorites. God loves unconditionally, infinitely, and equally. God does not treat you or them differently. God is not on your side as you right the evils and wrongs in the world. I mean, sort of, but you know what I mean, right? If you're in a conflict with another Christian, you're not automatically God's guy in the conflict. You may actually be the one that just needs to submit yourself along with this other person and mutually pursue God's healing and reconciliation. Acts 10 talks about this. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. This is the Apostle Peter talking about how God can heal the rift between Gentiles and Jews. There is no greater ethnic barrier in the ancient world than Gentile and Jew. And the Apostle Peter is saying, recognizing that God shows no favoritism helps him to understand that reconciliation at the grandest of levels is possible. It's amazing, right? Think about what Jesus says in Matthew 25. And I, you guys know the passage. I won't read through it in detail. But Matthew 25, 31 to 46. And, and he basically is coming down and he's telling these people that what they have done to the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. They're saying, when did we do that, Lord? And he says, whatever you did to the least of these. And then on the other side, whatever you didn't do for the least of these. You see how Jesus thinks? He doesn't evaluate people in the way the world evaluates people. He evaluates people as image bearers of God and he, and he evaluates them as, as those that are worthy of the dignity and the honor and the value of being so. It's like what Kevin preached on a few weeks back in 2 Corinthians. Because of Jesus, we see everything differently. We see no one according to the flesh. We see no one, in other words, in the way that the culture trains us to see them. We're called to work hard to see everyone the way that Jesus sees them. 2 Corinthians 5.16 I'll encourage you to go back and listen to Kevin's message if you missed it. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. James 2.1, a similar idea. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. It's the same thing, right? Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters, you did for me. Now, again, there could be context where this can be different because oftentimes we think we're in a place of speaking truth to power. We're defending the powerless. But be careful that your unity that you are trying to bring about isn't really just disguised division, isn't just really a unity of opposition rather than a unity of commonality. Because if it's a unity of commonality, I say, even this person that I have opposition to, they're a broken image bearer just like me. They're desperately dependent upon Jesus just like me. And they're empowered by the Holy Spirit just like me. 
What would it look like for us to come together instead of me to come like that? Right? That's what we need to do. I've seen this happen in so many different places in the country. I have a friend that's a pastor in inner city Baltimore, uh, Marcus Johnson. He and I traveled to Cuba together last year. And in October, we went to South Africa together. And God has used him in powerful ways. One of the men that was at this uh, congressional forum on racial reconciliation was one of the police chiefs of Baltimore. And this police chief of Baltimore was tired after a long and hard career. He was African-American and he was done. But right before all the stuff was hitting in Baltimore, the Baltimore Police Department recognized that they were on the edge of things blowing up. And so they asked him, could you stay on as a chief of police? We're going to keep you on having the same authority you've always had, but we are going to ask that you do just social outreach. That you try to do whatever you can to help the police better work with the, with the groups in the city. So this Baltimore police chief is a believer. And the first place he went was to this idea that Christians are supposed to be peacemakers. What would it look like for him to contact every faith-based organization and church and say, how can we work together? And so he and Marcus Johnson and others came up, with, came up with an idea for what they call prayer motorcades. They do this a few times a year in Baltimore and they'll go to the most broken part of the city and they'll bring literally a motorcade, right? It's, it's, uh, it's Christians from churches, it's faith-based organizations, it's charities, it's business owners, it's, um, it's political leaders, and they all drive in on purpose in an intermingled motorcade, police cars, personal cars, all kinds of different stuff. And they'll come en masse to one of the most broken neighborhoods in Baltimore and they'll come out and they'll do an event together. And they will ask the appropriate people to speak to the most challenging issues that are there and then they'll ask Christians to speak to how those issues can be served by those that are followers of Jesus. And then they'll pray and they'll sing and they'll provide a context for people to get to know each other better. And they reach out to gang members. They reach out to anyone and everyone to try to bring everyone together. They've been doing this now for about two years and they're seeing a greater than 30% reduction in crime for three plus months in every neighborhood they go to. The city of Baltimore's police department now is actually thinking of Christians as being able to be strategically deployed as peacemakers to the most broken and crime in parts of the city. Yes. It's incredible, right? This is what's possible if we get a vision for what God is doing. What, what would it look like for us as believers to come together to serve this city? To have a big imagination of what it would look like to be someone that was going to lay their lives down to serve someone else because we see others differently. Thirdly, how we see ourselves. How do you see yourself? When you read Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Does that resonate with you? Do you think, I'm a child of God, so I'm a peacemaker? Do you think, God, I'm not doing very good at being a peacemaker. Can you equip me? Can you empower me? Can you help me be a better peacemaker? If you are a follower of Christ, you are a peacemaker. Again, from Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says this. Let me sum it all up like this. The benediction pronounced on such people is that they shall be called the children of God. Called means owned. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be owned as children of God. Who is going to own them? God is going to own them as his children. It means that the peacemaker is a child of God and that he is like his father. Do you have your father's heart? Now, this is inside and outside the church. We need to think about this, right? Do you have your father's heart inside the church? Is an opposition with somebody else, is a conflict with somebody else that's not reconciled, that you're still bitter about, is it okay in your mind to just let that be? Do you worry about that? Do you have a burden to see reconciliation brought? Do you have a burden to recognize that you are not orienting and love and forgiveness towards that other person? Does it impact you on a day in and day out basis? Do you think I'm not at peace with them? That's a problem. 
And in the book of 1 Corinthians, we read about this, right? And we're going to take communion here in a few minutes. But communion, this is one of the critical things, right? When we come forward at the communion table, we are coming united. You don't examine yourself to see if you're unworthy, to see if you've looked into pornography this week or something like that, right? Sin's a problem. But what bars you from the table in the book of 1 Corinthians? What bars you from the table in the book of 1 Corinthians is allowing division between yourself and others to persist. Living in an unworthy manner before God is allowing division to just go unchecked. And so that's what he's talking about, his unworthy manner. He's saying, you're proclaiming that you're united by taking the Lord's Supper, but it's not the Lord's Supper you're taking. You're living divided. It's a joke. That's what 1 Corinthians is saying. Let's think about this outside the church. The idea here is, here's how it links in. Is it the, the reconciliation and the peacemaking that we cultivate in our midst as believers and uniquely within local churches, our ability to love and lay our lives down for each other, that we get so good at it in this practice ground that it overflows in our hearts, out into our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and we become those that can be characterized as peacemakers in the world. From a biblical perspective, Christians should be famous for making peace, but we suck at it in general. Why? Because we don't see Jesus as he sees him. And we don't see others as he sees them. And we don't see ourselves as he sees us. We don't really believe that being a peacemaker is a part of our core identity. And the more that we allow God to convince us and persuade us of that, the more he's going to begin to show up. Now, Jesus is present with us in the midst of it. And, and, and here's what it's going to look like to step out. It's to just give it a go. And to recognize it's not going to work well every time. And you can't manage it. The Holy Spirit has to do that. And you don't have it in your own ability, in your own strength. You can't plan it out and have it work exactly how you want it to work. It's dynamic because it involves two broken human beings or more broken human beings. And so we need to be able to come crying out to the Lord, understanding it will be messy, but lean in and engage. Wendell Berry says it a little bit more poetically. He says this. As every reader knows, the Gospels are overwhelmingly concerned with the conduct of human life of life in the human commonwealth. In the Sermon on the Mount and in other places, Jesus is asking his followers to see that the way to more abundant life is the way of love. We are to love one another, and this love is to be more comprehensive than our love for family and friends and tribe and nation. We are to love our neighbors, though they may be strangers to us. We are to love our enemies, and this is to be a practical love. It is to be practiced here and now. Love evidently is not just a feeling, but is indistinguishable from the willingness to help, to be useful to one another. The way of love is indistinguishable, moreover, from the way of freedom. We don't need much imagination to imagine that to be free of hatred, of enmity, of endless and hopeless effort to oppose violence with violence would, would be to have life more abundantly. To be free of indifference would be to have life more abundantly. We choose the way of love because of who Jesus Christ is. We choose the way of love because we have no other option. And then we go out broken and incapable and progressively receive the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to make us better and better at peacemaking. One, one quick story as we close here. Um, Ken Sandy, who I've learned a lot from over the years, he did Peacemaker Ministries. He has a book called Resolving Everyday Conflict that's absolutely brilliant. Um, he gave his life starting in the early 80s. He was a wealthy uh, corporate attorney for Chevron. And he started getting involved in peacemaking and realized how bad Christians were at doing it. And God called him out of the marketplace to serve full time to help do peacemaking. So Ken Sandy told me the story one time a couple years ago about a small to mid-sized town in Texas. 
And in this town in Texas, a church took on peacemaking as a unique call. And so they trained about 10 or 20 people within the church to be conciliators, to be reconcilers, to be peacemakers. And they began to open up their church every Tuesday night for about two to three hours to anyone in the neighborhood for half an hour appointments. And you didn't have to be a Christian. You could come in. And if you were a Christian, they'd go right to gospel content and help you understand it more broadly. If you weren't a Christian, the gospel is behind everything they're doing, but it's, but it's not like in your face, right? So they did this for, for years, and there was all kinds of great and wonderful fruit from it. They were saving marriages. People were coming to faith. The church was getting known for peacemaking. Then the, the, the town faced a bit of a crisis. This is Texas. Football's huge in Texas. And six of their star high school players were supposedly caught at a party drinking alcohol right before playoffs, and they were suspended. But here's the thing. They all had rock-solid alibis, and they weren't there. So the parents proceeded to file a wrongful termination lawsuit against the school district. The, the town began to take up sides for and against the administration of the coaches, for and against the students. It was a mess, right? It was, it was headed to court. There was no way you're going to reconcile it, and there was certainly no way you're going to reconcile it before the playoffs, and it needed to be reconciled before the playoffs. And so one person involved in the conflict says, hey, you know what? There's a church in town that's done a lot of really good work with reconciliation. What harm would there be if we just brought this pastor in to talk to us? And worst case scenario, we're still going to court. No big deal. So they brought this pastor in and he seats them around the table. He got this, the parents and the students on this end and the faculty and administration, some attorneys on this end. And he tells these guys, he says, I know that you guys weren't at that party. And you were wrongfully accused. And that's, that's unjust. And I understand that's painful and it's wrong. The administration should have done this due diligence. Their actions were absolutely wrong. And so you are justified in feeling frustrated that you were wrongfully accused. But can I ask you a question? He says, I understand you weren't at this party. But have you ever been to a party during football season before? And like, all of them? Yeah, of course. They're football players in Texas. <laughs> I've seen Friday Night Lights. Uh, <laughs> and then he says, again, we need to be honest and truthful here. Would you say that it, that it would be uncharacteristic or characteristic for you to partake of an alcoholic beverage while at one of those parties? And they all admitted to having drank at a party before. And the room's tension began to diffuse. So he said, so while you were wrongfully accused in this instance, it seems to me you just didn't get caught in the other instances, Right? So the administration made a big mistake. They were wrong to go out and, and prematurely suspend you guys. But, but you were wrong to stand there self-righteously as though you were like, you know, white as the driven snow, right? So in a room full of broken people that have made mistakes, do you think we can all find a way forward together? And they reconciled and they made it to the playoffs. <laughs> One more quick story, a 30-second story. Um, that guy's church is up in Montana and they started doing a summer peacemaking camp. It was just like a, like a Bible, vacation Bible school, but it was all focused around peacemaking. And there was an eight or nine-year-old girl in that camp who came from a horribly broken home who had come from generations of brokenness and she had a single mom living in a poor part of town that was struggling. And this girl is in there, probably for the free babysitting, getting these things day in and day out. She goes home after a few days in this peacemaking camp. She sees her mom on the phone in the kitchen, just yelling and screaming and cussing up a storm at her sister. And they're in this big conflict. And when the mom's done, she slams down the phone and yells. Her daughter comes into her and says, Mom, do you know there's a better way of resolving conflict? And the mom sits down in amazement as her daughter gives her the basic principles of peacemaking. The next day, that mom is beside that daughter sitting on the grass during this vacation Bible school, 
tears streaming down her face and she got saved. She wanted to hear more about this reconciliation story. You see, as I did preparation for this message, as I thought about it, as I've been praying for, for reality and as I've been thinking through this, an image keeps coming to my mind and the image is this. What would it look like for God to mobilize the towards 2,000 people in reality and the tens of thousands of other Christians that are in the Bay Area and in our city to mobilize us as peacemakers? I get this image almost of you guys as an army of God to make peace that's unleashed in the city, following the Prince of Peace, going out there and saying, I'm committed to peacemaking. How would the city change if we saw ourselves as empowered and commissioned peacemakers? Thousands of Christians all over the city desiring to love and serve their neighbors and make peace. That'd be incredible. That's God's vision for us in the city. That we would be an army of peacemakers who find our identity in Christ, who see Christ as, others, as Christ is to be seen, who see others as Christ sees them, and who see ourselves as Christ sees us. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our God and we are your people. We know we have no hope of doing any of this without you. And so we pray for you to come and meet us now. In Jesus' name, amen.